You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens, and today we will be breaking new ground for the Lab Notes podcast. Over the last two years, we've been speaking to people from across the innovation ecosystem, including researchers, entrepreneurs, investors, advisors, and science communicators. But one perspective that had been missing was that of government, who obviously do a great deal to support innovation through grant programs, public policy, and also by funding Australia's world-class public education system. I'm pleased to say that today we'll be adding that layer to our story by welcoming the Honourable Minister Alastair Henskins, Member for Karingai and currently the New South Wales Minister for Science, Innovation and Technology. Now as this is our first political interview, I did want to add a short disclaimer on the politics of this podcast. It is my sincere hope that science and innovation can be viewed as a bipartisan issue, one that is supported at all levels of government, regardless of which party happens to be in power. At the present time in New South Wales, that party is the Liberal Party, but we do not intend to bias our audience's political views in any particular direction. Rather, we are happy to see our platform host a diverse range of views from a diverse range of people, and in that spirit, our door was certainly open to Alistair, and it remains open to those who may have other viewpoints as well. But that's enough housekeeping, because it would not do the Minister justice to leave his introduction there. Alastair Henskins was born in Newcastle, and studied economics and law at Sydney University, as well as a Masters at the University of Toronto in Canada. Upon returning to Sydney in the late 1980s, Alastair began what was to become a successful legal career focused on commercial, banking and insolvency law ultimately reaching the heights of senior counsel in 2011. Over much of this time, Alastair was engaged in his local Liberal Party at a grassroots level, but his rise to Parliament came in 2015 when he was elected as the member for Karingai, succeeding the former Premier Barry O'Farrell to take the reins of this prime seat. Having won re-election again in 2019, Alastair was promoted to Cabinet as recently as 2021, and now holds the dual portfolios of skills and education, as well as science, innovation, and technology. From this position, Alastair not only has an incredible vantage point over the New South Wales innovation sector as it is today, but also a significant influence on where it will be into the future. I'm incredibly grateful for the chance to welcome him to our show. So Minister Alastair Henskins, welcome to Lab Notes. It's great to be here, Leo, and I'm really looking forward to our discussion. So, Alastair, you have several roles within the New South Wales government, but most pertinent to our audience is your position as the Minister for Science, Innovation and Technology. To start, could you give our audience a quick overview of that portfolio and how you see yourself contributing to the state's science and innovation? Sure. The the role is very much one to ensure that science, innovation and technology is being properly progressed within our state. Um, we're, we're leading the nation in each of those areas, but we we don't want to mark ourselves against Australia's performance. We actually want to mark ourselves against the world. And there are many areas where we're actually top of the world, 
but there are other areas that we need improvement on. And so my role as minister is to ensure that we're doing everything we can to put science, innovation and technology at the forefront of what our government is about. Because at the end of the day, uh, the portfolio of science, innovation and technology is incredibly forward looking. And we see our government as being a progressive forward looking government. And we want to ensure that our citizens have the absolute best of the future, whether it be future jobs, whether it be uh, the best prosperity they can have, or whether it is uh, looking after our world as best as we can possibly look after it. So it's a very exciting portfolio. Um, I work very closely with the chief scientist and engineer and his office uh, in the way in which we analyse issues and try and solve problems. But it's a great portfolio to have, and um, I'm certainly always excited to get up in the morning uh, to do my job. Now, taking a step back for a second, as well as talking about innovation on this podcast, I like to give our audience a sense of the person behind the role. What can you tell us about your childhood growing up in Newcastle? Um, probably quite unusually in many respects for a minister in the New South Wales government. I, I actually grew up in a non-national party regional area. My mother was born and raised in Australia uh, out at Lake Macquarie. My father uh, was born in the Netherlands, immigrated to Australia in 1951. As a 25-year-old, he'd lived through uh, German occupation of his country during the Second World War, and he came to Australia really to try and escape the old world of Europe and come to a new and better life here in Australia. So I went to my local public primary school and high school. Um, so I spent 13 years in, in public education. I, I was a quite diligent student, but I also played sport. I was heavily involved in music, drama at the school, tried to get the most out of out of my education. My parents were very focused on us getting the best education we could and, and doing the most with our minds that we could. I'm the youngest of five children. And um, I then, at the end of school, uh, went to Sydney University where I did uh, degrees in economics and law. And then at the end of university, I won a scholarship to study at the University of Toronto. So I did a Master of Laws degree at the University of Toronto. So that was really, I guess, my um, pre-work life. Yeah, thanks for setting that scene for us, Alastair. And given the time frame we have for this interview, we are going to have to speed through some of your career as well. But for the audience's benefit, we should certainly note that you spent the majority of your career as a lawyer starting in the late 1980s and working the whole way up to your election to Parliament in 2015. And although we're not going to have time to cover that full breadth of your legal career, I wondered if you could share with us the story of Omar Ali, which you also shared in your inaugural speech to Parliament. Sure. Um, so Omar Ali was my high school maths teacher from year nine to year 12. And I most recently spoke to him only a couple of weeks ago. He, he rings me still from time to time and, and we keep up with each other. Uh, Omar was one of those really inspiring teachers that I guess hopefully students are privileged enough to have uh, in their educational journey. He loved maths. He was my maths teacher. He loved maths. He started teaching our group in year nine. He really liked our group. Um, and, um, you know, Omar sort of was able to convey his love for mathematics onto his students. 
So Omar's great teaching um, facilitated me to get into economics law at Sydney University. And he had very dense cataracts in his eyes and had an operation on one of those cataracts. And unfortunately, there was what we allege was negligence in the surgery and he, he lost the sight in one of his eyes. Um, and with the density of the other cataract and him not being prepared to take the risk of having the other cataract removed, he was legally blind. So um, uh, I remember my brother encouraging me to go and talk to Omar and see how I could help him. And uh, ultimately, we commenced proceedings against his eye surgeon and was able to get him a, a negotiated settlement of his claim against the, um, the eye surgeon. Thanks, Alastair. And I like that story because it shows the, the lasting bond that teachers can have on their students and the fact that you were able to pay back to Omar by representing him later in life and indeed that you're still talking to one another now really shows that bond that the teaching relationship can create. But we should move on to your political career now. You were formally elected as the member for Karingai in 2015, but I can only imagine your engagement with the Liberal Party began well before that. For the benefit of our audience, I did want to note that Karingai is one of the safest Liberal seats in the state, so in many ways the battle for this seat is as much in pre-selection as it is in the general election. Could you give our audience a sense of your journey into politics and what sort of expectations might have been placed on you once it became clear you would be the party's nominee for this prime seat? Uh, look, I, I first joined uh, the Liberal Party in, I think it was in first year at university, uh, as a young Liberal, and to be honest, I wasn't that excited about the, the young Liberals after a couple of years. Um, so I left my membership of the party and then I rejoined later in life in my 30s after having helped out at elections and so on without being a member of the Liberal Party. And so I'd been quite active very much at a local level uh, in the local Liberal Party, not engaged in anything other than just trying to support uh, our local members. We had a number of excellent local members at the time, including Brendan Nelson, who was our federal member. And that gave me, I suppose, an insight into, um, I formed a lot of friendships and relationships with people in the local branches. I was asked to be the president of the Bradfield Federal Electoral Conference, which is sort of like the umbrella organisation to support the federal member who was Brendan Nelson at the time. And that was obviously very significant in terms of me ultimately prevailing in the pre-selection because I had very good relationships with the members who were the pre-selectors. Uh, it was a little bit of a surprise that I was pre-selected because I didn't have any of the groups within the party actually backing me. It was very much a grassroots endorsement of me as the pre-selected member. I, I guess I can't really speak for other people's expectations of me, but I suppose because I'd had a strong a career of success in my professional area as, as a barrister, because I was taking over a seat which had had two premiers in Nick Griner and Barry O'Farrell as members. I think there was some expectation that I should succeed as a politician. Whether I've lived up to those expectations, probably only other people can really comment. Well, I guess it's still a, a story that's in progress, Alistair, but you know, a few years later and another election cycle later, you did move into the ministry. And, and in late 2021, you received the dual portfolios that you now hold, which is skills and training, as well as science, innovation and technology. 
Has it been a steep learning curve stepping into the world of science and innovation after spending the majority of your career in law and the arts? Look, to a certain degree, yes, but to a certain degree, no. So there is an important element of this portfolio in terms of the commercialisation, which is uh, very much in my bellywick of economics and, and I practice mainly in commercial law. So I understand capital markets, investment, corporate structures, uh, the way in which startups need to operate and the engagement they need to have to commercialise their innovation and, and their inventions. From the science point of view, I don't have obviously a strong foundation in science as I would have had if I'd studied um, science-based subjects at university. But the, but the truth of the matter is, as a barrister, a big part of my job was always being educated by experts to understand areas of expertise. So I would frequently cross-examine doctors, engineers, architects, builders, financial analysts, and so on, on a whole range of areas which I had never studied myself. But uh, that's part of my training as a barrister, to actually be able to understand the foundations of any learning system and then be able to intelligently apply that. And so in many ways, I feel as if my training has been perfect for this portfolio. So in your capacity as minister, you now have a significant influence over New South Wales government policy in this area, including the many grant programs that support research, entrepreneurship and innovation in the state. Before we get into any specific programs, would you mind giving us an overview of how the New South Wales government is developing its science and innovation strategy? Sure. So our state government um, approach to innovation, I guess, has been an evolving process. And we have a what I think is a fantastic chief scientist and engineer in New South Wales who I work very closely with. And between him and other people within the government, what was formulated uh, about 12 months ago was an accelerating R&D New South Wales action plan. And that was really a way of taking stock. It was developed, uh, led by David Gonski. Uh, there was a whole lot of engagement with all the stakeholders. And that action plan was put together to refocus what we are doing in New South Wales to make sure that we're getting the most out of our R&D and um, commercialisation of our research. So that was a very important step. And we've been working through that action plan. But very shortly, we, we will come up with our 20-year strategy, R&D strategy, uh, which is in the process of being finalised. So that will very much uh, gear where we are. But we have a whole lot of interesting pieces to the puzzle of government policy in this area. So we have an Innovation and Productivity Commission, which looks at how we are going in innovation and productivity in New South Wales. Uh, the IPC, they, they actually deliver a, a scorecard and we're going to have a scorecard released next week, which actually tracks New South Wales on innovation and technology and R&D against nations as well as comparable or, or what we would want to see as comparable jurisdictions like California and, and other states um, and other sub-jurisdictions. So the IPC actually do a whole lot of really valuable, critically looking at it and seeing where we can uh, do better. 
And in addition to that, um, what was called the Waratah Research Network was established some years ago, and that really was looking at pulling together the research that's going on in government and looking how it can work better with research in our universities. So one of the big focuses of, of our government strategy is to actually drive collaboration between our university sector, government and industry, because when they are working together, the, the sum of the whole is much greater than the uh, individual parts. And this has been a secret in other parts of the world in terms of them really turbocharging their R&D. And that's what our government has been working hard to achieve here in New South Wales. So you mentioned the 20-year action plan there, and I guess a, a holistic review of the offerings of the New South Wales government. Is that likely to mean a shake-up of your legacy programs like the Minimum Viable Product Grant, the Physical Sciences Fund, or boosting business innovation? Um, I, I don't think so much as a shake-up as a, a focus on how we can better support those kinds of initiatives. So what our 20-year plan will be looking at is um, how we can focus on our strengths and ensure that we are being uh, the best that we can be. So that 20-year R&D roadmap will be taking stock of where we're at and how we actually advance things so that we are better. I think it's fair to say, Leo, in, in this area, that we want to be doing more rather than less. Well, picking up on that point, Alistair, I did want to ask you about the balancing act of government funding, because when you entered politics, you established your reputation as something of an economic conservative, and you voiced your preference for a small and efficient public sector. I anticipate this might be at odds with many voices in the academic sector who would argue that practical innovations like computing, the internet, or even modern biotechnologies are built on a platform of quite expensive public research before they transition to the private sector and yield their economic potential. How do you determine within your government what is an appropriate public funding allocation to science and innovation when the return on investment is often long delayed and extremely difficult to measure? Look, uh, Leah, there's some, some really good questions um, in, in, in that, and I'll just try and uh, unpick it. I don't think it's uh, correct to say that if you believe in the efficiency of markets and so on, that you necessarily are against public investment in research. Um, we have in New South Wales the greatest per capita concentration in the world of top 200 world-ranked universities and every one of them is a public university. So we are, as a community, getting a massive return from our public investment in university research and university education in New South Wales, and that's something that our government appreciates and supports very strongly. Now, I, I, I guess I'm not entirely accepting the premise of your question that a government which wants to see efficiency in economic markets and to see that that will drive prosperity is necessarily against science, innovation and technology research. In fact, uh, it was the Premier who set up this portfolio, the first in New South Wales history, 
to ensure that we were taking full advantage of the opportunities that investment in this area will drive. Um, so I think that's very important for people to understand. And, and for what it's worth, as Skills and Training Minister, I'm also the Minister for Tertiary Education. I, I think, I, I believe I enjoy an incredibly strong relationship with our university sector. In terms of where we allocate our resources and how do we measure the success of where we allocate those resources, um, that is a really good question and it's something which we need to be very careful of, but we also need to be not timid about. So if I can use an example, 15 years ago, we as a community started investing in quantum research here in New South Wales. Now we have now, 15 years later, one of the world leading quantum computing ecosystems right here in New South Wales, largely centered around our university sector. And each university has their particular strengths in this area of quantum computing research. To date, other than training a huge number of PhD students and investing in world-leading human capital, we haven't got a tangible financial return on that investment. But I would say that it's still been a huge success. And it's been a success because we have set ourselves up in a pole position to be able to take advantage of the commercialization of that technology once it is finally um, commercialized and 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 perfected so i would not say that because we don't have a balance sheet profit item yet which shows that we've got a return on our a financial return on our quantum cupidity investment that that's been a failure so what i think we need to do as a government is to make broad assessments of where the future is going and what the opportunities, the areas where there are particular competitive advantages and opportunities for us here in New South Wales, and to focus on those areas with regard to our support. Now, that doesn't mean that we will ignore everyone else, because that would be putting too many of our eggs in one basket. But in terms of focusing our resources, it does allow us to be able to make decisions about where we want to put more of our resources. And is that done by me sitting around a table, flipping a coin and making uninformed decisions? No, it isn't. Uh, what I do is listen to the experts, the people who really know a lot more about these things than I do. I ask a whole lot of questions, Leo, I can assure you. The barrister has not left my body. Um, I ask a lot of questions so that I have individual satisfaction that the advice that is being given to me uh, makes sense. But, th but that's what I always did. I mean, for example, as a barrister, you would routinely have two experts giving conflicting opinions and you have to have skills to determine which on balance is probably the correct expert opinion. And, and I, I've applied that methodology even before I became a minister, I might add in my life as a member of parliament because i'm not elected to be a rubber stamp i'm elected to be an intelligent participant within the process but also not believing that i know everything well minister hanskins we are almost out of time but thank you so much for that comprehensive and insightful discussion about the new south wales innovation ecosystem and for sharing your perspectives on good governance in this space it's been a genuine pleasure and I hope we can do it again soon.
Thanks for your time, Leo. Great to have a chat. Well, that's all from Lab Notes today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget you can always check out the episode description for our guest biography and links to all of the organizations mentioned in today's episode. Lab Notes is a production of Eon Labs with music sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Dr. Nat Harris. If you've liked today's episode, don't forget you can subscribe to get new episodes in your feed and check out our back catalogue for any interviews you might have missed. But that's all for now, so until next time, keep inventing.